This is Jonathan Altoff, pastor at Milburn United Methodist Church. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you would, please leave me a comment or let me know how you are enjoying the podcast. You can let me know at jonathan.altoff at yahoo.com. That's j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n dot a-l-t-h-o-f-f at yahoo.com. Again, thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy today's. We are tracking through several verses and, and sections, and you'll want those sections to come back to what we've talked about. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity for You to pour out Your Word to us. Help us to receive it, understand it to apply it, and more so, to live it as you would have us to. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen. You may be seated. Church up! We've been talking about it a little bit. And it's a verb. I call it hashtag church up. This is the sermon series within the Rise Up series because we need to church up. And uh, it has uh, begun to unfold for us in a real powerful way, and we're starting to see these effects in our community and in our church. I don't think this phrase is yet commonly used, but we can change all that. If you will share church links and what God is doing in your life with the hashtag church up, maybe that'll change. Maybe we'll be the grassroots movement that brings the world back to Jesus in strong ways. So today... As we talk about church up, we're going to learn the risk in avoiding churching up. I want to start with a story for you uh, from the late 1800s election. It was one of the last elections of that century. And there was a candidate for the Republicans that was politically and financially corrupt, although he received the party's nomination for president. There were some Republicans who didn't want to vote for him, and so they rallied behind the Democratic nominee who won the election. One of those folks in the background of all that was named Teddy Roosevelt. That's how he began to get some of his name known was during that period of time. However, since they were uh, Republicans and, and beginning to support the Democratic Party, the folks in the Republican Party didn't like that. You don't abandon your party, if you know what I mean, and go off to the other party. You just abstain and don't say anything is what they would think. But these folks were very vocal, and they helped the Democratic nominee win the election. Very interesting, right? But there were people who weren't happy with what they did because they weren't acting Republican. I'm not telling you which way you need to be, but I want to tell you what they said about those folks within the Republican Party. They said, if you're Republican, vote Republican. If you're not going to vote Republican, then switch and be a Democrat. 
But because they said, no, we're Republican, we just can't support the candidate, and so we're still Republican. And they said, well, you're riding the fence. You're saying you're this, but you're voting that. You're acting one way and saying you're another. You have a title, but your actions don't line up with it. And so they started calling them mugwumps. Mugwumps was a French word that came along earlier in the 1800s that means someone who can't make up their mind or decide on an issue clearly. But they took it, and a political cartoon at that time showed this uh, person who was a Republican sitting on a fence, hanging over the fence like this. And the fence was running lengthwise through his midsection. And they called him a mugwump because on one side of the cartoon was Democrat, on the, other side of the, on the other side of the fence in the cartoon was Republican. And so they called him Mugwump because his mug was on one side and his wump was on the other. And that's how that came to be an insulting term for those people who did that in their own party. But do you know what? Sometimes you have to live what you believe over what title you have. And if you believe in, believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to act differently than other people in certain circles that you hang around, even though you're associated with them. So if their party was corrupt and they chose in good conscience through their faith not to support that, but support the other party, they were acting out of their faith, not out of their political belief. In my heart, I believe we follow Jesus first. Second, and third. Anybody else you follow is going to lead you astray. So that's what those mugwumps are in uh, that time frame. And they were around for a few years. They had their own little party for a few years and then it was done. But it means what it meant then. And I have to tell you, sometimes a Christian is a mugwump. They say they're a believer, but they act different. True. Or they think people who are not Christian ought to act Christian. Not sure why that is, but a non believer is going to act like a non believer. We should not be surprised by that. I want to share something with you. You cannot please God or do the will of God without Jesus Christ in you. If you don't have Christ in you, you're not after the heart of God. If you have the heart of God in you and the heart of Christ in you and you're developing the mind of Christ more and more, you look like someone trying to please God with what you do and not strive after what the world is striving after. But you cannot please God without Christ in you. And the fact of the matter is none of us can do this until Christ is in us. It even says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every last one of us. There's not one of us that went the right direction. Why? Because that's the way God built us to be of free choice. So if we turn to our own way, then as we've gone astray, there's no way we can say, well, I, 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 I do what God wants even though I don't know who Jesus is. It's not a true statement. It doesn't work that way. People may think they know how, but they don't. 
So let's look at how people can move off the fence in Christianity and begin walking the true straight path. The fundamentals we talked about last Sunday were really good. A friend of mine listened to it and sent me a, a little cartoon. Uh, the sermon last week was over 45 minutes. I didn't know if you noticed that. I did later. Um, but he sent me a, a little cartoon with a police officer standing at the pulpit going, Sir, that's a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone. You are getting a ticket. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> I, uh, I thought, man, I ought to put that on the screen or in the bulletin. And I said, no, people didn't go... We're watching a clock on you today, buddy. Um, but last week we looked at seven fundamentals. I listed them there for you in the bulletin and what they are. And we're going to look at the first one, which is right thinking. A lot of people who heard those seven said, please share more. The first one is right thinking. Um, here's how wrong thinking comes in. First of all, we begin to look at the way people act, the way they dress or behave as a way of discerning their character. Do you remember when God told Samuel that he was going to anoint a new king to replace Saul? And he had all the tribes pass by and went through them all, found one tribe, went through all the leaders of that tribe went and went to one section and he said, okay, now bring this family. It was the family of Jesse. And said, now bring all Jesse's sons in front of us. And they were handsome, strong, good-looking men. And they all came by, young men as a matter of fact, one at a time. And Samuel said, it's none of these. Surely you have another. And Jesse said, yes, but he's a little boy and he's tending sheep. I'm sure that's not the one God wants. And Samuel said something that we need to hear real carefully. God does not look at outward appearances or behavior. He looks at the heart. And sometimes we forget to look at people's heart and rather miss who they are because of the way they talk, act, dress, or behave. But i got to tell you, what people do or don't do is not as important as their heart. And what people don't do in the faith can be as critical as what we actually do. Now, what do I mean by that? John Wesley said there's two kinds of sin in this world. Sins of commission and sins of omission. You may have heard of those before, but I'll, I'll be kind of a short way of saying this. So we often overlook one for the other because we're looking at what people are doing, not what they're not doing. Or what we're doing and not what we're not doing for God. But I've got to tell you something. The sin of commission is something you've done that violates the Word of God or separates you from fellowship with others in the family of God. A sin of omission is the good you know you ought to do and didn't. The opportunity you had but you didn't take it, but rather reacted or responded in a way that was harmful. Those sins of omission can be many. And it's heartening to know that we all have gone astray so we all know what it's like to be one whose heart has been darkened by the world. So we can look at others and see the same thing in them. We often look at what people have done, but we don't look at what they've not done. Now, my question is, 
Have you ever had an opportunity to do something for the church or for God or for another and said, well, I'll do that later? The moment you have the opportunity is the moment God is putting you in place to do it if you've got the ability and resources. And that's what He's doing. And if we don't, James says, he who knows what is right to do and fails to do it for that person, it's sin. And so if we don't do something that God has put in our place to do that we can, we have sinned. And yet we don't look at that as sin. We just say, I had other things to do or you know, I'm not sure God wanted And we justify that. But that is saying, I believe in God and I want to please Him. But just because that's there didn't mean it was God. And so we don't say, well, God is this you. We just don't do it. Right? It happens. All of us do that. Well, in 1 John, he tells us in 4.4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now this applies if you believe in Jesus Christ and are in a relationship with him. Then he's in you. And he's greater than the one who's in the world, which is the devil. The enemy, if you will. Now, I share this with you because those forces are still at work. The ones in the world are always going to be at work, and Christ is trying to work in you and through you to reconcile others to the Father and to make you holy. That's His task, to bring you into relationship with His Father. That's what He's trying to do. And when we look at this verse and we say, greater is He that's in you than he that's in the world, we should get all fired up and go, man, that's great. But what happens is he that's in the world gets our attention because we're easily distracted. And we're easily distracted because our eyes are not fixed on pleasing God all the time because we don't know how. We've gotten away from fundamental things. And so John says in our verse for today, do not love the world or the things in the world. Otherwise, it's going to distract you. But let me put this in terms of how John really said it. Because this is kind of a, a smoothed off, unoffensive way. He says, stop doing the things in the world. He doesn't say, do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, stop it. Stop associating with yourself in your mind that those things matter to you. That they're more important to you than anything else. Stop it. Well, here's how Moses said it in Deuteronomy. Choose. Choose this day who you will serve. And this day is always the day you're in. Choose who you will serve. Life in God or death in the world. Always making those choices in everything we say and do. That's right thinking. That's the mind of Christ. Christ at every given moment had more than one temptation besides the Garden of Gethsemane and in the desert. He had more than that. And so each time He had a temptation, He had to stop and bring it to God and choose life. No matter what His own will wanted. And that's where we get stuck because our will gets in the way of other things. Now you might know all this, but for me, what happens is I pause and I get distracted. And then all of a sudden I go, well, I'll get to that later. I'll pray in a minute. I'll study my Scripture later. I'll do my devotion some other time. If I asked you, what time of day do you do your daily devotion, would you say, clearly, this time? Or would you say, well, I try to get it in sometime throughout the day. 
What has been studied and understood is that if you don't have a set time that you make habit, you more than likely won't do it consistently. It's true. If you won't do it in the morning and you won't do it at night, will you do it during the day? Well, I might. You might not too. But where is your priority? What is it that you truly believe? Connection with God in relationship, which is a daily moment-by-moment thing, or you'll get to it when you can. I'm asking which way is the right way to think about that. I was challenged by that a few, a couple few years ago when I was sitting there trying to do my devotions. And I said, God, I'll do this later. And he said, I thought you said I was the most important thing in your life. I said, you are. And he says, well, why don't you want to read my word? I said, I do, but just I've got something else I have to do here that's really pressing my mind. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm anxious to get that done. And then he pulled out Matthew, do not be anxious. Do not worry. Have I not known what you need and I will provide? Seek me first and I'll take care of the rest. Do you know how many times a day I need to remember that? Until my mind is right thinking every time. And for you, I believe the same. And so, we find in our lives those truths that we don't always know how to live out the faith. And what does the world do? He tells us and clearly in verse 16, everything that's in the world, and He tells us, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life are not from God, they're from the world. Now, I'm going to be real clear with you. It's real simple to understand. The three things I'm going to define for you are not from God. They have no part in holiness or righteousness or pleasing God or doing the will of God. But without God and Jesus Christ in you, these things are all you have. Because you don't have a Father in you to bring you something different. So the first one is the lust of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, we read about the lust of the flesh. I want to explain to you what the lust of the flesh is. It's something that makes your flesh feel satisfied. It can be sexual sin. It can be gossip, physical violence, drugs, anything that makes your flesh feel better. Now, I don't mean like if you're tired and you get some sleep or you're hungry and you eat to make your flesh feel better. Those are natural functions that you need to do. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is something that you think you need to feel good because you don't feel good without those things and those things have become your source of feeling good or um, energized. So, Galatians tells us what those are in chapter 5. The works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. I'm reading on the screen, so I need the next page. I'll get there. Okay, idolatry, thank you. Sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. Any of this sound godly to you? Envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 
Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you, says Paul, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God because those things are more important to them than God. They're not godly things, but the world seeks after them. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I've done stuff to make myself in the flesh happier. But it says we all have before we knew God. And it's true. And we become very protective of those things. Making sure we have enough of those things in case we ever might run out of the things we have that make us feel better. Or feel good. Now, I'm not going to belabor that, but, but Eve in the Garden of Eden had that temptation. And she also had the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And I'm going to show you where she had the lust of the flesh explained to her in Genesis 3.6. And what the devil comes to do is tempt her saying, you're going to know good and evil. You surely will not die. And in verse 6 it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good to eat and pleasant to the eyes, she took and ate. The lust of the flesh was that it was good to eat. Good for the flesh. Even though God told her no, that she knew that God had said this would not help the flesh, that you would rather die, she saw that it was good for food. She was The world told her God didn't know what He was talking about. Now, in Jesus in the wilderness, He was also tempted to turn bread or stones into bread, right? And if these stones can become bread, you'll be able to eat. But Jesus was on a fast for His Father. So if He would have eaten that bread, He would have broke that fast which was pleasing to His Father, which He was sent to do by His will, and would have broke that relationship. That's the temptation we face. Break the relationship with God and do the things that you feel are better than what God says. The second one, the lust of the eyes. What does that mean? It means it has visual appeal and you want it for that reason. You want it because it looks good. Oh, you might say, I never do that. Well, I promise you, David did with Bathsheba. And there are a lot of guys and girls in this world walking around going, boy, she looks good or he looks good. And start thinking about different things that they could do with that person in relationship. Or something that looks really nice that you don't necessarily need, like an upgrade to something or a bigger and better and faster because it has a visual appeal. You want it just because it looks better than what you have. I like what Dave Ramsey said. I don't know if you follow him, but in his financial piece he talks about, he said, I'd rather drive a beat-up car out of debt than own the latest greatest and be in debt and owe all my life to the bank. That's what he said. He said, yes, the other one looks better, but in a few years, I can buy one of those with the money I saved. And I'll be out of debt. But I'll look bad for a while to be a good steward of what God's given me. That makes sense? 
you got to think different. Another guy who was an investor said it like this, and he wasn't promoting godly principles, but this is one. He said, you can buy a $500 bag to put your money in, or you can buy a $25 bag and put $475 in it. It all holds the same thing, right? Which one are you doing? For appeal and visual effects to, to show off, to feel more happy because you got the latest and greatest? This is what the world has taught us. You need to upgrade. Upgrade. I don't know how many times a week I see a phone upgrade advertisement. I don't need to upgrade my phone. My wife is shocked that I say that because every year or every other year I did. I don't do it anymore. I like what I have. It works great. I don't need to upgrade. There's no need for that. There might be a want, but no need. But we get tempted by the world to say, well, you need this because it does this with your eyes. Or it takes better pictures so you can make better pictures. So you need, you don't need. Those are wants. And the right thinking says, I need what God says. I need every word of God and the bread of life, Jesus Christ. I may want other stuff, but that's secondary to honoring God. So that's the eye, lust. And it can be things like pornography, other people's material possessions. It can be status or appearance. All those things are uh, lust of the eye. And uh, Eve, of course, was tempted in that sixth verse the same way. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. That was the word that she saw. It was a desirable thing in her eyes. She saw it, that it was good. It wasn't good, but she saw that it was good because it was explained to her that it was good. And the things around you are going to tell you things are good that are not of God. They will not help you draw closer to God. And here's what happens. You'll get distracted, occupied, or otherwise busy in those things that aren't necessarily bad of themselves, but they stop your time with God. Do you know, and I don't think I've ever told you all this, that one of the worst inventions and one of the best ones at the same time was the microwave oven? Did you know that? Did you know I can cook a hot dog in 40 seconds in that thing? Or 25, it's that little skinny one. But I'm serious, you can cook it that fast, eat, and you're on the way. I saved how much time? Maybe 30 minutes of boiling the thing in the stove, right? Or building a fire and cooking it probably two hours. But I saved 30 minutes. What did I do with that 30 minutes? Did I go and spend it with God? The time I saved, I did with things I wanted to do. So we became a fast food, fast religion economy that doesn't have time for anybody because we're trying to save time that we don't have enough of because we keep trying to save more. You can't save time. There's no banking in. You can only use it wisely. So if you do something that used to take you an hour and five minutes, the other 55 minutes are your gift from God for Him. Oh, but you don't understand. I did this time-saving thing so I could clean the house quicker. So you could do what? So I could go shop quicker. So I could do what? So I could go see my friends quicker. So I could do what? So I could, you know, come back home quicker. What's this quicker stuff when you don't have the time for God in it? It's all vanity, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes, right? But that's the lust of the eye, and we keep doing that. And do you remember when uh, Satan took Jesus in the temptation 
and tempted Jesus with the lust of the eyes, do you not? Do you remember what he said? Matthew 4. He took him to the place and he said, This is what you need to do. If you will throw yourself down, the angels will hold you up. And you'll see that this is a good thing to do because they're protecting you. And Jesus said, Nope, I'm not going to do that. No, I will not because God said this. No, because God said this. Do you have that in your handbag of dealing with the world? No, because God said this with every situation that you might face. Jesus did. Eve did not. We see who got stuck. The third one, pride of life. This one's pretty simple to understand. It's where you're tempted to have excess, excess greatness or power. Unnecessary authority, if you will, to be more than who you are and what you are. And Eve, of course, was tempted there when she said it was desirable to make one wise. Now, how's that powerful? Because wisdom is power. You know something that someone else doesn't know, you have power. And she saw that temptation as something that she thought she needed. Only God knows what you need. But another way pride of life can be seen is as desiring credit for what God or somebody else did. Some people desire it that way. So someone does it and you take the credit, that is pride of life. Or if you desire someone else to see you in excess esteem, like they need to think of me better than that. They need to think more of me because they need to know how good I am and how wonderful I am. They need to do that for me because this is what matters to me. If they don't, then I don't feel like I matter. So they got to show me how wonderful I am. And other people need to acknowledge me. This is pride of life. The desire to feel more valued or important than other people. It's always a competition with you and someone else. That's pride of life. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you're supposed to be better than others. And nowhere in Scripture does it say they're supposed to be better than you. Nowhere. And some pride of life looks like a desire to be in power to feed an ego or to brag about their status. High school reunion. <laughs> 15-year reunion. We've all been out a while. We're in our 30s. And uh, one guy is a company owner in Hawaii and another guy uh, still lives at home with mom and dad and, and then there's me uh, pastor and, and I wasn't really braggadocious on anything but there were the guys who would say yeah man I, I live in Hawaii on the beach I own a company and he's in his 30's you know how many guys in his 30's can do that but you'd look at him and you'd notice he was still as hollow and empty as he was when he was in high school Still wasn't happy. But he desired those things and wanted to brag about it to make himself feel a little bit better in the moment. But guess what? That's temporary. When God esteems you and lifts you up, that's permanent. God holds you in high regard. But for Him to do that, He has to bring you to that place from a place of humility. All I did at that reunion was say, I'm a pastor, got a couple kids, and 
just struggling day to day. And I didn't try to be more than I was. And one by one, each of my classmates pulled me aside and said, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. And I'm thinking, why all of a sudden is the guy who was made fun of his brother Altoff in high school now the guy they want to talk to about faith? A guy who was the most scoundrelous guy, you know, initiated all the freshmen in the class and thought it was funny, pulled me aside and said, I need to be a better person. Can you tell me how? What can I do? And I'm sitting here going, why are they doing this? Don't they have anybody else they can talk to? And I realize it's because we have 20 year history and they trusted me. History can make trust or break trust. In that case, not bragging, just stating the facts. And they came to me. Now the question is, in your life, how would you like to live your life as God intended and see a dramatic change in the lives around you because people see God in you? How would you like that? It'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But you can't sit on the fence and go, I want that, but over here doing the things you want to do. You either got to want to serve God and get over here or stay on this other side and stop saying you're doing that. You can't do it. Churching up says I'm walking the faith, I'm talking the faith because that's all I want. Over here it says I'm pretty sure I belong to God. I think I got this, but I'm not really sure how to do this and I'm not asking. And I'm not trying. And I'm not talking to anybody about it because I think they'll think I'm not a Christian or something. All of us have gone astray. Every last one of us. There's no one here who hasn't fumbled along the way trying to get to faith in the midst of a struggle. And if you're not sure and you have to ask, that's a sign that you want to grow, not a sign of shame. Because God says this, when you humble yourselves and say, I don't know how, I need help, God says, I can lift you up. But if you say, oh, I've got this already, God can't help you. Pride comes before a fall. Today, if you read my utmost for His highest, I thought, God, You are so good. Oswald said, We are often said that because a person has no natural ability, that they won't make a good Christian. Or that because they do have natural ability, they will make a good Christian. But it's not a question of our equipment, but of our poverty. Not of what we bring with us, but of what God puts into us. Not a question of natural virtues, of strength, of character, knowledge and experience. All of that is of no avail in this matter. He can do nothing with the one who thinks that he's of use to God. You must come to God and say, I want to do for you, but I don't know how. I can't. Jesus is in me, but I keep listening to the world. Pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, keep stopping me, God. Help me. Help me. Please. If we do not acknowledge our brokenness and incapability to live life for God without Jesus Christ in us, we are saying we love God, but we don't truly believe it. Or live it, because it's a sin of omission. 
We cannot have two masters. You cannot be this and that. Revelation says, be one or the other. You're in the middle, I'm going to spit you out. Be one or the other. If you know you're not godly, own up. God help me to be godly. Help me to live a righteous life, Jesus. Put your Holy Spirit in me and on me so I can walk this faith. I need you to do that every moment of the day. And if you're not of that mindset, then you don't know that you can't do it without Him. All have gone astray. All of us. And we need help, guidance, assurance, and comfort to get back or into the relationship God called us each to. Does that make sense? It does to me. So what's the answer to this dilemma? How do we stop this? Repent. First of all, saying, God, I tried to do it without you, but I can't. I don't know why I thought I could. But God, I want to. I want to, and therefore I know you're real. And I want to please you. I want you to have my life. God, I see others outwardly. And I allow myself to have bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. And, I, and I'm not always truthful. And my eyes don't always go where they need to go, God. And I need your help to, to walk this journey with you because the world's big. And I want to tell you this, that without Jesus, the world wins. The devil will beat you one side or the other unless you have Jesus doing your battling. And without Jesus, Jesus can't battle for you. And you're torn up. It hurts, truly, to walk without Christ. Each of us have done that. Sometimes we try to minimize that, right? Well, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Paul says in Galatians 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which means neither what you've done or not done matters anything but being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 In Christ, all things become new. The Scripture says very clearly, when Christ enters into your life, you have a new desire of how you want to live. To ignore it and deflect it puts Christ and quenches the Holy Spirit all on the back burner. And you can't do it without that. It's why we struggle so much in faith. In Romans chapter 12, it says it like this. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is reasonable. And then he says this in verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. There's that world again. Don't be conformed to that stuff the world's trying to tell you what you need. But be transformed to let your mind be made new. And only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. That you might prove what is the good, perfect will, and pleasing will of God. And you can't do that unless Christ shows you. And He can't show you if you don't want Him to lead your life. Does that make sense? It does to me. 
it seems to put right thinking in black and white terms for me without having to think about, well, do I or do I not? If I've sought God in the matter, then I do what He says. If I haven't sought God in the matter, I don't need to act in it. That's all I'm trying to say. And I pray that that's the same for you as true as well. So, if you have found these things in your life have been your choices, stop. No. Those are the first two words out of your mouth. No. Stop. Oh, you won't want to accept that. And your will won't accept it either. But there's no other way but to choose God. And you will live. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your Word is yes in Jesus Christ and amen. It always has been, always will be. And I thank You for that. I ask Your blessing upon us here and the courage to do the things Your Holy Spirit is leading each of us to do right now. God, that we might find Your grace, Your peace, Your mercy, Your hope alive in us. Help us to come humbly before You and say, God, I need You. I really, really do. And so doing, Heavenly Father, may we live out the Gospel.